You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Good morning. Good morning. Hope everyone's doing well this morning. Uh, Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and we'll begin. Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for the privilege that is ours to be able to come before your throne of grace and not have to come through any other mediator other than through Christ. No popes, no priests, just through Jesus. We thank you for recovering uh, the, the truth of your simple, pure, unadulterated gospel through the men, through men like us and Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. And uh, we stand on the shoulders of these giants. But Lord, ultimately, we, um, we give you praise and thanks for your simple gospel. And we thank you that uh, nothing can come against it. Your word will not return void. And the light of your gospel does indeed shine. Go with us now, Lord. Sanctify us in the truth of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 4. 1 Timothy, chapter 4. This is a message I have entitled, Doctrine, Deliverance or Destruction? Deliverance or Destruction? Hoping we'll be able to see all of this. It's a little washed out from the lights there. But uh, As you're turning there, 1 Timothy, Paul wrote... First Timothy, Paul met Timothy on his first missionary journey in the town of Lystra, which is in modern-day Turkey. Paul met Timothy when he was probably between age 17 and 20 in that neck of the woods. So an older teenager, a very young man, between 17 and age 20. Uh, Paul, uh, Timothy was raised as a Jew. He was taught the scriptures from his mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois, respectively. And so when Paul met him as an older teenager, 17 to 20 years of age, uh, Timothy heard the gospel, responded to it, was converted, and then Timothy later accompanied Paul on some of his other journeys. And by the time Paul writes this to Timothy, this is some 15 years later, Timothy is now the pastor of the church in Ephesus, Ephesus also in modern-day Turkey, And it's interesting, when Jim read the text for us a few minutes ago, we're all familiar with that phrase, let no one despise you for your youth. Uh, We think of Paul writing that uh, in in reference to a kid or to a teenager. Paul was writing that to Timothy as he was a pastor in Ephesus. And by this time, Timothy was was in his early to mid-30s. So not uh, as young as, as we often picture him to be. So Paul is writing this letter to the young pastor Timothy, early to mid-30s, and Paul says this to him. He says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, I don't have time to give a full exposition of this passage because we are going to jump into uh, the doctrines of Roman Catholicism and the heresies that they teach. But to walk through this just briefly, notice Paul says to the young pastor, he says, "...give attention to the public reading of Scripture." The public reading of Scripture was the central part of the worship in the synagogues. We see this in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus walked into the synagogue. You might remember that account. He walked into the synagogue and he read from the Scriptures. He read from Isaiah chapter 61, stood to read, and then he sat down. Remember that? He sat down to expound upon it, to teach it. And that's what they did in the synagogue. 
they would stand to read the scripture and then the rabbi would sit down to teach and explain it. This is what Jesus did in Luke chapter 4 and the early church continued this. They also would stand and read the scriptures, sit down to teach it. Of course, they incorporated not only the Old Testament teachings, but after the advent of the church, uh, the apostolic teaching, the teaching from the apostles, the gospel. So give public attention, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation. What is exhortation? Exhortation is a challenge to not only hear what is being taught, but to follow it to obey it, to do it. As James says in James 1.22, or we are not to be just hearers of the word, but to be what? Doers. We are to obey what we are taught. And he says, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Now this was not some mystical experience, this laying on of hands by the presbytery. This was just a public confirmation of the calling that God had on his life. And he says, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them. Now you might notice that that word absorbed is in italics. When you see a word in italics in your Bibles, if you've got a, a good reliable Bible like the New American Standard, the ESV, the King James, a literal translation, when you see a word italicized, that means that it's not actually in the text, but that's the sense of it that's, that's supplied. And so the text literally says, Paul says to Timothy, be in them, be in them. Be, and that is a sense, be absorbed in them, be submerged in them. In what? In teaching. Be absorbed in the things of God. Be absorbed in them. Let the, let the word of God saturate every facet of your life. And that is what we must do, dear ones. We must let the Word of God saturate every facet of our lives. We are to test all things, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.21. We are to test all things, hold fast to that which is good. Our lives must be dictated in every facet by the Word of God. Be in them, submerged in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. When the Word of God saturates every facet of our life and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, we will mature. We will grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happens, it will be evident to everyone. If you have to wear a Christian t-shirt to tell people you're a Christian or so other people will know you're a Christian, then something's wrong. If you're growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that will be evident to all. And then Paul says in verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Pay close attention. Take heed. Very strong exhortation here. Take heed to what? To two things. To yourself and to your teaching. To yourself. What is that? Your conduct. Your daily living. As Christians, we should be marked separate from the world. We are to be sanctified, set apart for a special work to God. As Christians, we should look different than the world. And if we do not look different than the world, then something is wrong. Pay close attention to yourself. Make sure your conduct matches what you profess. The conduct of your life, of our lives, must, must, must match what we profess from our mouths. Pay close attention to yourself, to your conduct, to your holy living, and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, this word teaching here in the Greek is didaskalia, another form of it, didache. And that word, when you see teaching in your Bibles, if you've got a good literal translation, didaskalia, didache, it means doctrine. Teaching means doctrine. So when you see teaching, you know that is talking about doctrine. Pay close attention to yourself and to your doctrine. To yourself and to your doctrine. There are those people who say that doctrine is not really important. And it is tragic that we have gotten to the point where most people do not believe that doctrine and theology are important. And yet... Timothy says, pay close attention, take heed 
to yourself and to your doctrine. Why? Because in so doing, you will ensure the salvation of both of yourself and of your hearers. Doctrine is directly connected to salvation. There is nothing more important than that. And take heed to these things. Doctrine, deliverance or destruction. Salvation is fundamentally a work of deliverance. That's what salvation is. Salvation delivers us. God delivers us. He delivers. Psalm 144, verse 2, the Lord is my deliverer. In Romans chapter 6, Paul speaks of being obedient to doctrine, he says. Be obedient to the doctrine and be freed, delivered from sin. So what delivers us from sin? What delivers us from death? Doctrine does. Doctrine delivers us. And these people who say that doctrine and theology are not really important do not know of what they speak. There are these people who say, well, I don't need doctrine. I don't need theology. I just love Jesus. I just love Jesus. I don't care about the doctrine and theology. I just love Christ. That is a foolish statement, and that can only be said from someone who does not really love Christ nearly as much as he or she professes to love him. Sound doctrine saves. False doctrine destroys. False doctrine destroys. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. In this I pray that your love would abound still more and more in what? Knowledge and discernment. You see, the Bible never separates knowledge of God and love for God. Never. It always combines these things. And so these people who profess how much they love Jesus, and yet they have a disdain for doctrine, they have a disdain for theology, they have a disdain for teaching, then they do not love Jesus nearly as much as they profess to love him. The Bible never separates knowledge of God and love for God. The Bible always combines these things. Your love would abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. Now, please keep this in mind, dear ones. It is possible for one to have sound doctrine and live an ungodly life. That is possible. It is possible to have sound doctrine and live an ungodly life. We see this in the New Testament. We see it in Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus. You remember this account? The rich man died, went to the place of torment, the lake of fire, and he could see across the great chasm. And he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. The rich man who died and went to the lake of fire was not some atheist. You know, he wasn't a member of the ACLU, people of the American way. He was a religious man. He saw Abraham, recognized him, called him by name, gave him a title of respect, Father Abraham. This was a religious man. This was a man who had been taught the scriptures. This was a man who had doctrine, and yet he was in the lake of fire. We see this. Unfortunately, in our own day and age, even some men in recent years who have had good doctrine have fallen into immorality and disqualified themselves. So it is possible to have good doctrine and have an ungodly life. It is possible to have a head full of knowledge and that knowledge not penetrate your heart. But what is not possible, what is not possible is to live a godly life with unsound doctrine. Okay, You can have sound doctrine and live a godless life, but you cannot have unsound doctrine and live a godly life. You cannot have unsound doctrine and live a godly life. Flip over, over in your Bibles one book, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Chapter 2, 2 Timothy 2. Sound doctrine delivers. Sound doctrine delivers delivers, it saves. Unsound doctrine destroys. Paul says, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless. It leads to the ruin of hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, rightly dividing the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter. Now that worldly and empty chatter, that's not chit-chat. That's unsound doctrine. That's false teaching. Avoid it. 
for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. The deadly dangers of unsound doctrine. Briefly, unsound doctrine leads to the ruin of hearers, as we just read in verse 14. It leads to the ruin of the hearers. Unsound doctrine, false teaching, is a danger both to unbelievers because it presents a false gospel. False teaching is a false gospel, and a false gospel does not save. So it is dangerous for unbelievers. You cannot respond to the real gospel unless it is taught rightly. Okay? Dangerous doctrine leads to a false gospel is a ruin to unbelievers. And also, unsound doctrine is even a danger to believers, to genuine believers. It causes confusion, discouragement, and obedience. Now, this word here, ruin of hearers, that is a strong word. It is the word katastrophe in the Greek, katastrophe. And you know what that word means, don't you? You can just tell by the sound of it, catastrophic. It leads to the ultimate destruction of unbelievers because they have not been presented the true gospel and it can even lead to the destruction of believers not in an eternal sense but it can be very ruinous to them it can it can in a sense almost shipwreck their faith even to believers because false doctrine will stunt their growth it will cause confusion it will discourage them and it will lead to disobedience you cannot obey what you do not rightly understand. If you're being taught false doctrine, then you cannot live a life of obedience that glorifies God. So it does not result in the loss of salvation for a genuine believer, but false doctrine will stunt their growth. It will confuse them, particularly we're talking about immature believers, people who, do, who, have not, who are new believers, young in the Lord, False doctrine is an especially acute danger for them, lead to their confusion, to being discouraged, and to their disobedience as they're not being taught rightly. Ungodliness yields bad fruit, we see in verse 16. Bad doctrine yields bad fruit. Bad doctrine yields bad fruit. And also notice that false doctrine spreads like gangrene. Dear friends, error always begets more error. Mark it down. Error begets more error. Today, the United Methodist Church is in open discussions about homosexual marriage. In fact, many United Methodist churches are, have now openly, basically the whole denomination is openly embraced homosexual marriage. John and Charles Wesley would be turning over in their proverbial graves if they knew that. It didn't start that way. Where did it start? It started, really, by the United Methodist Church. Of course, they have a more Arminian theology, but also uh, when they began to compromise on the biblical parameters for the roles of men and women decades ago, started with just a little bit, and now they've openly embraced homosexual marriage. Completely apostate. Error always begets more error. It spreads like gangrene. This word here, gangrene, in the Greek, it's used for infections. It's also used for cancer. False doctrine spreads like a cancer. That's why Paul says to Timothy, take heed. Pay close attention to yourself and to your doctrine. Now, jumping in to what we've been discussing over the last several weeks, the Reformation and Roman Catholicism, I want to give you a brief overview of how false doctrine uh, of the Roman Catholic Church compromises the very gospel itself. We've been talking about the five solas, the five solas, sola gratia, grace alone, salvation is by grace alone, sola fide, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Solus Christus, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. 
soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone, as recorded in sola scriptura, scripture alone. Now, let's walk through these briefly, and I'll show you how very dangerous Roman Catholicism is. Now, I have a couple of, I have some graphics here, some charts, and I've kind of just put it in two columns, biblical Christianity on the left side, Roman Catholicism on the right. Let's look at sola gratia, salvation by grace alone. Biblical Christianity teaches that salvation is of the Lord. Psalm 37, 39 states this, Titus 2, 11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. The grace of God is just that, it is God's grace. Salvation is of the Lord. We use the term sometimes monergism. Mono means one. Erg in the Greek means work, one work. Salvation is the one work of God. It is all of God. And that is biblical Christianity. That salvation comes from the Lord. It is all of God. Roman Catholicism, however, teaches that salvation is of the church, the Roman Catholic Church. And if you are not a part of the Roman Catholic Church, then you are outside of the grace of God. Biblical Christianity affirms what we call the total depravity of man. Total depravity is not that man is as bad as he could be, but rather that man is totally unable to come to God on his own. He is dead in trespasses and sins. Romans 3, 10 through 11, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. None. Not a few. None. We are dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, John 3, 19. We love our sin, we love our darkness, and we hate the light. Romans 5, verse 10, we are enemies of God. The Bible could not be more clear, dear ones. We are not spiritually sick. We're not in the spiritual ICU. We're spiritually dead. Tag on the toe, dead. Roman Catholicism rejects that. They reject it. They reject total depravity, total inability. They believe that we're just kind of spiritually sick. We just have a spiritual cold that man can choose God of his own volition. Biblical Christianity teaches that grace is unmerited favor bestowed by our sovereign God. Unmerited. We do not earn it. It is given by God freely. Romans chapter 11, verse 6, Paul says, But if it is by grace, referring to salvation, if salvation is by grace then it is no longer on the basis of works, Paul says in Romans 11. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Paul could not be more clear. If we could somehow earn the grace of God, then it's no longer grace. Grace is no longer grace. Roman Catholicism does not believe this. Roman Catholicism teaches that grace is a thing or it's a force that is merited by works. We can contribute our works and then we earn somehow the grace of God. That is not grace. That is not grace. They reject grace alone. In fact, I'll show you this from the Council of Trent. Now, the Council of Trent was this 18-year or so council. This was the Roman Catholic answer to the Reformation, basically. Once the Protestant Reformation was really getting a full head of steam, you had men like Huss and... Calvin and Luther and Zwingli. And so the Roman Catholic Church decided we've got to have some kind of an answer for this because it's really getting out of hand. So they had a council, they came together, had the Council of Trent, culminated in 1563. I'm going to read to you their own words. This is the Roman Catholic response to the Protestant Reformation. Council of Trent, Canon 12, says this. If anyone saith, old language, if anyone saith that the justification received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. In other words, the one who says that justification is not received, it's not preserved, it's not earned by one's own good works, that is, that is simply a fruit and sign of justification. The works are fruits and signs of that justification having been granted. Let him be anathema. 
And that word anathema is damned. If you believe that salvation is by God's grace alone, according to the Roman Catholic Church, you are damned. You will die and you will go to hell. You won't go to purgatory and then get to heaven. You'll go to hell for all of eternity. If you believe that grace is given by God alone and not merited by good works. Sola fide, faith alone. Let's look at this. Biblical Christianity teaches that we are justified by faith alone. Roman Catholicism teaches that we are justified by faith and works. Now, the Roman Catholic Church will not deny that faith is important. They will say that it is important. You must have faith in order to be saved, but you've got to add works to your faith in order to be saved. Faith alone, that word alone is so key. Faith alone, according to Roman Catholicism, will not save you. You've got to have faith and works. The difference between imputed and infused righteousness. Imputed righteousness is this is that when Jesus died on the cross, our sins were imputed to Him. Our sins were credited to His sinless account. And by virtue of His work on the cross and His bodily resurrection, when we place our faith in His work, then His righteousness, a righteousness that is totally alien to that of our own, His righteousness is imputed to us. It is counted to our accounts. Our sins imputed to Him, His righteousness imputed to us. That is biblical Christianity. Roman Catholicism rejects imputed righteousness. Rather, they believed in what's called infused righteousness. How do you get infused righteousness? Well, you get it through the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. Baptism infuses righteousness into you. Confirmation, penance. Marriage, anointing the sick, holy orders, and especially the Eucharist. Through these seven sacraments, and there are not seven sacraments in the Bible. The Roman Catholic Church invents these, not sacraments. But through these sacraments, you get basically, think of it this way, you get a shot of Jesus in you. You get his righteousness. It's, it's, it's like getting a flu shot or taking some, uh, you know, some vitamin C. Kind of flush your system with some vitamin C. Only in the Catholic view, you flush your system with Jesus' righteousness. And of course, then, of course, it wears off. So you've got to go back to confession. You've got to do your penance. You've got to say your Hail Marys. You've got to do all these things to maintain that righteousness. There is a difference as wide as all of eternity between imputed righteousness and infused righteousness. They are different as night and day. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is credited as righteousness. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. It has been said that Romans 4, 5 is the Colt 45 to Roman Catholicism. It's a good verse to know. It's the Colt 45 to Roman Catholicism. And there are many other verses that would also be that, but the numbers work out for Romans 4 or 5. Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. We are saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And if we could work our way into heaven, then we would have something of which to boast. And dear friends, you and I have nothing to boast about. The only thing that you and I contribute to our salvation is our sin. That's it. That's all we contribute to our salvation is our sin, the need for it. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sola fide, faith alone. Let's see what the Roman Catholic Church has to say about this. Council of Trent. Canon 9, if anyone says that by faith alone the impious, the sinner, is justified, let him be anathema. If anyone says, now watch this, if anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that this confidence alone is whereby we are justified, let him be 
Anathema. Let that sink in for just a moment. If anyone says that faith is nothing else but the confidence in the divine mercy which remits forgive sins for the sake of Christ, let him be anathema. And yet that is the definition of faith. That is what faith is. And the Roman Catholic Church says if you believe that, you will go to hell. This remains official Roman Catholic doctrine to this very day. It was never rescinded. Not only was it never rescinded, it was affirmed in Vatican II. Official Roman Catholic doctrine to this very day. In other words, if you believe that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, you will go to hell. In Christ alone, solus Christus. Well, surely the Roman Catholics have the right Jesus, don't they? No, they don't. Biblical Christianity teaches that there is but one mediator. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 could not be any more clear. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. How much more clear could it be? There is one mediator. One, Jesus Christ alone. The Roman Catholic Church rejects that. According to Roman Catholicism, there are many mediators between God and man. You've got the Pope, you've got bishops, you've got cardinals, you've got priests. All of those guys are mediators. Everybody from your local priest to local Catholic church all the way up to the Pope himself, they're all our mediators. Biblical Christianity teaches that there is but one Redeemer, Jesus Christ, of course. Roman Catholicism rejects that. Because guess who else is a redeemer? Mary. Mary is a redeemer. She is the co-redemptrix. The co-redemptrix with Christ. She redeems us, according to the Roman Catholic Church, just like Jesus does. You've heard of the Immaculate Conception, right? The Immaculate Conception. A lot of people think that that's in reference to the virgin birth of Jesus, or the virgin conception, rather, of, of Jesus. It's not. When a Roman Catholic talks about the Immaculate Conception, they're not talking about Christ. They're talking about Mary. They believe that Mary was conceived of a virgin and that Mary was sinless. They believe that Mary was sinless. Never mind that in Luke chapter 1, out of Mary's own words, she praises God her Savior if she was sinless, why would she need a Savior? They teach that she was conceived of a virgin, that she was sinless, and that guess what? She never died. Mary never died, according to the Roman Catholic Church. She ascended into heaven just like Christ did. Co-redemptrix. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Now let me say this. I've noticed among some former Roman Catholics, people who have been saved out of the Roman Catholic Church, and I'm sure there's a number of people in here. My wife would be one of them. Amongst some people who are saved out of the Roman Catholic Church, because there's such a reaction, and rightly so, to what the Roman Catholic Church has taught, they, they almost have a little bit of bad taste in their mouth with Mary. Dear friends, keep this in mind when it comes to Mary. Mary would be the first person to reject what the Roman Catholic Church has done to her. She would be the first person to reject it. Also, biblical Christianity teaches that there is but one sacrifice of Christ, one sufficient sacrifice. Roman Catholicism rejects this. Roman Catholicism teaches that Christ not was sacrificed, but is sacrificed every single time they have Mass. Every single time they have Mass. Those of you who are familiar with Roman Catholicism may be saved out of it. You know this, the sacrifice of the Mass. Catholic Mass is called the sacrifice of the Mass. There's a reason they call it the sacrifice of the Mass. Because they believe that when they have Mass, they are actually sacrificing Jesus Christ again. And again, and again, and again, and again. Over and over and over. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times each and every day in Roman Catholic churches all around the world. 
Do they really teach this? Yes, they do. This is from the Roman Catholic Catechism, paragraph 1367, if you'd like to look it up. Roman Catholic doctrine says this, The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Holy Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim, now I want to pause right here, the victim. That raises my cackles just a little bit. Dear friends, Jesus never was, is not now, nor will he ever be a victim. He is the ultimate victor. I bristle whenever I hear Jesus referred to as a victim. His life was not taken. He gave it. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of the priests who then offered himself on the cross, saying that Jesus, who offered himself on the cross, is now offering himself through the ministry of the priests. Only the manner of the offering is different. This sacrifice is truly propitiatory. The only thing that has changed is the manner. The first sacrifice was a bloody one. Now all the sacrifices that we do in Mass, it's just an unbloody sacrifice. But it's the same thing, you see. It's propitiatory. Propitiatory means that it, it, it removes, it satisfies the wrath of God, which is a little bit ironic because, as we'll see, the Catholics really don't believe that. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died how many times? Once. Once for all, the just for the unjust. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, By this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. How many times? Once for all. By one offering, He is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Again, I do not know how the Bible could be any more clear. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself once for all. And you read the book of Hebrews. Read the book of Hebrews. I don't know what the Roman Catholic Church does with the book of Hebrews. I really don't. It is sprinkled all throughout that book. I don't know what the church, the Roman Catholic Church does with that book. One offering. Dear friends, what did Jesus say on the cross right before he yielded up his spirit? It is finished. His work was completed on the cross. Now, here's why I say, here's why I say the Roman Catholic Church has a different Jesus. And a lot of people, even some, even some sound people, uh, I've heard say, well, the Jesus, the Roman Catholic Church has the right Jesus. I'll tell you why they don't. Yes, they believe that he was born of a virgin. Yes, they believe that he was sinless. Yes, they believe that he was God. But they do not believe his sacrifice was sufficient to pay for sins. The value of Christ's sacrifice is a direct reflection and direct correlation to the value of his person. Okay, I want to say that again. The value of his sacrifice is a direct correlation, direct reference to the value of his person. The only way that his sacrifice on the cross was not sufficient to pay for sins one time, once for all, the only way that that would be possible is if his person was not perfect. His sacrifice was perfect because his person is perfect. If his person is perfect, his sacrifice is perfect. But the Catholics reject this. They have to keep sacrificing him over and over and over and over. So his sacrifice on the cross was not perfect. That means his person was not perfect. So they do not have the right Jesus. Let me show you this. Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1378, says this. Worship of the Eucharist. Their words, not mine. The Eucharist is the, is the wafer, the cracker, what they call the host. Worship of the Eucharist. In the liturgy of the Mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine. This is their doctrine of transubstantiation. Catholics believe that when they have Mass and the priest takes the, waf the, the wafer, the little cracker, what they call the host, that that turns into not the symbolic flesh of Christ, the real flesh of Christ, the actual flesh of Jesus, and the wine turns into his actual blood. Not symbolically, 
Not in a memorial sense, in a real sense. It just looks like bread and wine, under the species of bread and wine. The Catholic Church has always offered and still offers to the sacrament of the Eucharist the cult of adoration. Their words, not mine. That's rather apropos, isn't it? Kind of interesting that they use that word, the cult of adoration. They worship that Eucharist because they believe that's Jesus in there. Jesus is in the cracker. I don't mean to make light of that. That's what they teach. And you might have heard of perpetual adoration. A lot of Catholic churches, they'll take that wafer, the cracker, and they'll put it in this gold, whatever you want to call it, stand, goblet thing, and they sit up with that thing all night long, and they worship it. They worship the biscuit because they think Jesus is in there. It is indeed a cult. Soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone. Biblical Christianity, God alone is due glory. God alone. Roman Catholicism, however, teaches that many should be getting glory. Many in the Church of Rome get glory. Many of them do. Psalm chapter 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Isaiah 42, verse 8. This is God speaking. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. That's a problem from the Roman Catholic Church. God says he will not give his glory to another, nor his praise to graven images. And yet, what do you see when you walk into a Catholic church all over the place? Graven images. This is an interesting little comparison. Now, a little bit different from the last graphics. On the left, Roman paganism, pagan Roman religion. On the right, Roman Catholicism. I'll show you the, the similarities between pagan Roman religions and Roman Catholicism. Isis. Isis was the Egyptian mother goddess religion. They referred to Isis as the queen of heaven and the mother of God. Roman Catholicism took that pagan notion, baptized it, metaphorically speaking, in some Christian, some more biblical lingo. Mary is the Roman Catholic version of Isis. Mary in the Roman Catholic Church is referred to as the queen of heaven and the mother of God. Mithraism was another pagan Roman religion. Now, in this Mithraism, this pagan Roman religion, they had a meal... The meal was sacrificial in nature, and when they ate the flesh and they, when they ate food and when they drank blood, they believed that they were actually eating the flesh of Mithras, their god. Mithras was actually present, not symbolically present. Mithras was actually present in the food. His blood was present in their wine. Roman Catholic version of that is the Eucharist. Henotheism is the belief that there are many gods, but that only one is really supreme. We see this in the Roman Catholic Church with their, with their, their plethora of saints. In fact, I tried to look it up. They, do you know the Roman Catholic Church cannot even tell you how many saints they've got? They don't even know. They estimate it as somewhere northwards of 10,000 saints. They got a saint for this. They got a saint for that. And now they would say, yeah, we only really worship the true God, but, but see, we have all these saints, and you can pray to them. We don't worship the saints. And they'll say, well, we don't pray to the saints, we pray with the saints. I beg to differ. They do pray to the saints. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now in the hour of our, of our death. I think I missed a phrase there. But they pray to Mary, they pray to all the saints, and they got saints for everything. They actually have a saint. I don't know if I've still got it, but at one time I had a saint, Saint I don't know who it is, St. Thomas or somebody. You can buy this in a, in a Catholic bookstore. He'll help you sell your house. Little, little statue of St. Whoever it is comes in a green box. I've got it. And if you want to sell your house, you bury this fella in your front yard, 
and he'll help you sell your house. That's pagan. But you can buy one of these things in a Roman Catholic bookstore right now. People who are in heaven now are referred to as saints. But dear friends, even when we get to heaven, we're not going to be omniscient. How do you think Mary, how do you think it is that Mary, just to use her as an example, when all these Roman Catholics, there's 1.2 billion, billion with a B, Roman Catholics all around the world, and they pray to Mary every day. How is it that she hears all of those prayers? The only way, the only way that she could hear them is if she is omniscient. Even when we get to heaven, dear friends, you and I are not going to be omniscient. There's only one who is eternally omniscient, that is God. So they may say that they don't pray to the saints, but they do. Roman emperors, the city of Rome, uh, the city, the center of the Roman Empire, uh, the head of it, Pontifex, Pontifex Maximus, the Caesars, Pontifex Maximus. He was revered as a god. The Roman Catholic Church adopted that idea, and they applied it to the Bishop of Rome, Bishop of Rome Supreme. The Pope took on the name Pontifex Maximus, and to this day, the Roman Catholic Church refers to the Pope, Pontifex Maximus. Roman Catholicism is baptized, to use that term, paganism, paganism. I want us to look at the papacy. Remember, we're still under Soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone. Have you ever thought of the titles of their popes? They give the titles, these titles, to their popes. Three main ones. Holy Father. Holy Father. Head of the church. And the vicar of Christ. Think about that. They refer to the pope as the Holy Father, the head of the church, and the vicar of Christ. There is only one Holy Father. That is God. Who is the head of the church? Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Vicar of Christ. Now this word vicar means substitute. Substitute of Christ. Who is the real vicar of Christ on earth? Jesus said it is to your advantage that I go away, right? Because who will come? The Holy Spirit. The paraclete. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three titles for the members of the triune Godhead they give to the Pope. But Pope Francis, you see, he's the humble Pope. Because that's, that's the big thing with Pope Francis. He's so humble because he, he cooked his own food. And he, Pope Francis doesn't wear the papal red shoes that most popes wear. He just wears black shoes, so he's very humble. Dear friends, if you think you are the Holy Father, the head of the church, and the vicar of Christ, you ain't humble. I don't care what color your shoes are. You're not humble. That is the height of arrogance. The height of arrogance. The very notion that a man would dare accept such a title. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. And this is where Jim started our series. Biblical Christianity, only one item on the left-hand column, the Bible. That's our authority, the Bible. Roman Catholicism, oh, they'll take the Bible almost always out of context. It's not that they reject the Bible. They'll take it, but they'll take it out of context. But the Bible's not enough, you see. So in addition to the Bible, let's add the Apocrypha. These 11 books like First and Second Esdras and uh, Tobit and Judith and First and Second Maccabees and the Prayer of Jeremiah, Prayer of Manasseh, these, these other 11 books. We'll add those to the Bible. Well, aren't those supposed to be in the Bible too? No, they're not because they are littered, littered with errors, littered with errors, geographical errors, historical errors, and theological errors. There's a reason they're not in our Bible. They're not supposed to be. They never were supposed to be. Church tradition. They elevate church tradition to the same authoritative level as that of Scripture, even higher than that. Papal bulls. When the Pope speaks ex cathedra, when he speaks from his chair, it is infallible. And all of the councils that they've had, Council of Trent, Vatican Council, 
that's authoritative, and of course their visions and miracles. Something that you'll notice about every cult, every cult disparages the cross of Christ, disparages his work, and appeals to a some other source of authority other than the Bible. They may not reject the Bible out of hand, but we're going to add other things to it. Every single cult does that. With Mormons, it's the Book of Mormon. Every single cult does that. The Roman Catholic Church has killed literally millions of Christians. Millions. We don't even know how many. The estimates vary widely depending on how you um, how you garner those uh, numbers, how you define them. But just a few. John Huss, we've heard his name mentioned. He was a priest from Czechoslovakia. He challenged the Pope. He challenged their indulgences. You could refer to John Huss. He really was the very first of the reformers. He was given multiple opportunities to repent. The Roman Catholic Church came after him, gave him opportunities to repent. He would not do it. And his last words were this, before he was executed, his last words were this, Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. And then they tied him to a stake and lit him on fire. And it said that as he started to burn, he was reciting the Psalms. William Tyndale, what was his crime? His high crime was translating the Bible into English. That's what he did wrong. And the Roman Catholic Church tied him to a stake and burned him. They at least had the decency, it's reported, that they strangled him before they lit him on fire. Just for translating the Bible into English. The entire history of the Roman Catholic Church, the entire history of the Roman Catholic Church, is one of its doing its dead level best to keep the Word of God out of the hands of everyday people. It has fought tooth and nail to do that, and it has killed millions of Christians. If that was the only problem. Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer actually began as a Roman Catholic priest. In fact, he was a very ardent defendant of the papacy, even as the Reformation started in its early years. But then he heard the gospel. He heard the real gospel. He was converted because he was a sheep who heard the voice of the shepherd. He went to him, and he started preaching the true gospel. The Roman Catholic Church couldn't have that, and so they burned him at the stake along with a man named Nicholas Ridley. And as these two men were tied to the stake, about to be burned to death, burned alive for their sole crime of preaching the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, Hugh Latimer's last words were this. He said to his friend who was about to die with him, he said this, Play the man, Master Ridley. Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And it wasn't. It wasn't. We stand on the shoulders of these men. And we give God thanks for them. Biblical Christianity. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And we know this from Scripture alone. And dear friends, the Roman Catholic Church has anathematized all five of these solas. And it remains official Roman Catholic doctrine to this very day. It has never been rescinded. If you believe the gospel, according to the Roman Catholic Church, you are anathema. You will go to hell. So what do we do now as we conclude? Dear friends, hear me. We do not hate Roman Catholics. We do not hate Roman Catholics. Hear me. We love Roman Catholics. We love them. 
but we should love them enough to tell them the truth. We do hate Roman Catholicism. We don't hate Catholics. We hate Catholicism. Oh, Justin, that sounds so strong. You hate Roman Catholicism? Yes. Yes, I do. And I hope you do too. We should hate anything that God hates. Anything that God hates, we hate. What God loves, we love. What He hates, we hate. And we should hate anything that is opposed to His glorious gospel. And Roman Catholicism is diametrically opposed to it. It keeps over a billion people in spiritual bondage. And we should hate anything that does that. We should hate anything that does that. Just a few years ago, I was in Ecuador. And uh, I was with a, a man named Will Pounds. He spent almost his entire life in Ecuador as a missionary. Ecuador is heavily Roman Catholic. And he took me up into this little village. And uh, he wanted to show me this little village in a marketplace. We got up there. And uh, it, as, we, as we drove into this little village up in the mountains in Ecuador, he said, Justin, this is old school Roman Catholicism. Old school Roman Catholicism. He said, if you were to get out of the car right here and start preaching the gospel or handing out tracts, he said, they would stone you. And he didn't mean that metaphorically. He said, they will stone you here. In many parts of the world, Roman Catholicism is still persecuting Christians. And if the Roman Catholic Church had the power of the government like it did 500 plus years ago, the Roman Catholic Church would still be doing what it used to do because it hates the gospel. So we don't hate Roman Catholics. We love Roman Catholics. We hate Roman Catholicism. And dear friends, we should love our Roman Catholic friends enough to tell them the truth. Anyone who is saved in the Roman Catholic Church is not saved because of the Roman Catholic Church. It's saved in spite of it. But hear this. Once someone is saved, and that person is indwelt by the third person of the triune Godhead, they have passed from death to life because that person heard the gospel somewhere. That person may stay in the Roman Catholic Church for a short season, but not for long. Not for long. When we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, dear friends, the Holy Spirit of God bears witness to the truth. He convicts of sin. He bears witness to the truth. The Holy Spirit of God is not a weakling. Those whom He saves, He changes. Those whom He saves, He sanctifies. And a genuine Christian will not stay in the Roman Catholic Church indefinitely, even for very long. When Kathy was saved... She was saved as a Roman Catholic, been a Roman Catholic her entire life. Mike Gendron, if you've ever heard of him, he'll give you the same testimony. After their initial conversion, they may not could have told you the exact differences between imputed and infused righteousness, but you know what? They were indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. He was bearing witness to the truth. They didn't know all of the error, but they knew they had to get out, and they did. A real Christian won't stay in the Roman Catholic Church. We should love our Roman Catholic friends and family members enough to tell them the truth. That there is good news. Jesus Christ offers them good news. He offers them freedom from the bondage. Freedom from the efforts of trying to merit their own salvation. Freedom from all of that. If we are willing to repent of sins, turn from sins, and place our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, His once-for-all sacrifice if we're willing to turn from sins and place our faith in Him, our trust in Him, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, He will save. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary, weary and heavy laden, weary of trying to work your way into heaven, weary of trying to go through the priest and, and pay your penance and say your Hail Marys, weary of all these futile good works. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, burdened with your sins, and I will give you rest. There is salvation in no one else in Jesus Christ, in Him alone. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, 
how very, very grateful we are that you have done the work for us. That you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be the once for all offering for our sins. Father, as your gospel has gone out, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do his work, would convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment, would convict of the truth of the gospel. Father, as many, if not maybe even all of us in here, we have friends, we have family members, we know people who are Roman Catholic. Lord, may we be burdened for them, burdened for their souls, and empowered and assured of the power that we have in your gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So Lord, may we take it out in the highways and the hedges and speak the truth in love. All for Christ's sake. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.